Today, we are going to cover the first four verses of 1 John. So, follow along with me, 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. We ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts, open our minds, open the eyes of our understanding, that your word would have entrance into the good soil of our hearts, that you would bring about a transformation, that you would change us, that you would renew our mind to the truth, that we would be a people more closely conformed to you, that we would be witnesses to you in this world for your glory. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 John is um, one of three letters that John wrote. The Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. James and John were brothers. This is the same John who is the author of the fourth gospel that bears his name, the gospel according to John. And John writes this letter to the believers in truth. He's encouraging them in the truth, but he's also refuting a false heresy, a, a false teachers that have come claiming that Jesus did not really come in the flesh, but only appeared to do so. And as I told the children, if that were the case, if that were true, if Jesus did not come in the flesh, then Jesus did not actually die for our sin, which means he did not actually atone for our sin. And this false claim was that Jesus only gave the appearance or the illusion, if you will, of coming to live and die in the flesh. This heresy is called uh, docetism. And it's related to another theological term called Gnosticism. Two terms most people are probably not familiar with today. But just because we don't know these names doesn't mean these lies are not still prevalent because they are. Both of these heretical teachings have been historically rejected by the church. So this false doctrine that is called docetism comes from the Greek word doikon, which means to seem. Not in reality, it just seems to be real, but it's not really actually real. So docetism teaches that Jesus only seemed to come in the flesh, but in reality, he did not. It's kind of like a CGI version of Jesus, except instead of being computer generated, it was paranormally generated. 
The related heresy of Gnosticism was named for the Greek word gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge. And Gnostics sought after special or secret knowledge that came directly from an entity they called the Supreme Father. And they saw themselves as superior to other people because they possessed this secret or hidden knowledge. Gnostics believed that the physical world was the work of an inferior creator. And the way that translated or played out was that the things that we do in our physical bodies in this physical creation were deemed ultimately inconsequential. inconsequential. In other words, it didn't really matter how you lived your life. Sin all you want, do whatever you want, because the physical doesn't really matter. It was the hidden or the secret knowledge we possess that matters. And so since what a person did in the body was considered inconsequential, the practice of sinful behaviors and lifestyles were very common and were very accepted in John's day in, in the world at that time. The scripture teaches us that what we do, what we actually do, what we make a practice of our life, what we make a practice of doing, though, actually matters. Because what we do, what we practice, is actually a reflection of what we profess to know. But more importantly, for the believer, it's a, it's a reflection of who we profess to know. So if we profess to know Christ, we can't just live our life any way we want to because what we do actually matters. So if we know Christ, what we practice must be consistent with who he is. And we can't know Christ if we don't know his word. And this is why John begins his gospel the way he does. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're parallel in many ways. John's gospel is very different than the other three gospels, and some critics use that as a reason to say that the Bible actually is not reliable. My friend David Brooks gave me a little magnet. It's on my refrigerator, and it's a picture of Jesus on the side of a hill with his disciples, and he says to them on this magnet, now listen guys, I'm only going to say this one time. I don't want four versions of this. That's not actually the way it's supposed to be. It's, the Bible is written for a reason, the way it's written. And when John comes to his gospel, and he records his gospel, John's purpose, just like Matthew's purpose, was to reveal Jesus the line of the tribe of Judah, the king of the Jews. Mark's gospel was to reveal Jesus, the suffering servant. Luke's gospel, the Greek physician, wrote his gospel to reveal Jesus, the man. Jesus, the king. Jesus, the servant. Jesus, the man. John writes his gospel to reveal to us Jesus, the God-man. Jesus, not just in his humanity, but Jesus in his deity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so this is how the, 
opening statement of 1 John. John begins his letter with these words, that which was from the beginning. And we, we read that opening verse of 1 John and we immediately see the influence of the opening verses of John's gospel that I just quoted to you. It's hard to, it's hard to miss the relationship there. Let me read again 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked, we've gazed upon, and our hands have actually handled concerning the word of life. In other words, that which was from be the beginning concerning the word of life. That's 1 John 1, 1. Now listen again to the opening verses of John's gospel. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning is Jesus. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, the word that was in the beginning, the word that was with God, the word that was God, is the same Jesus who is the word of life that John is referring to in this letter. That which was from the beginning, the language here in 1 John goes beyond the actual incarnation of Christ. It goes beyond his birth, his coming to this world in flesh. It is certainly affirming Christ as the eternal word that became flesh and dwelt among us. But it goes beyond the incarnation to before the creation itself, proclaiming that that which was already eternally in existence from before the beginning of creation, namely Jesus Christ, the word of life. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. John is describing the Jesus he knew, the Jesus he walked with, the Jesus he talked with, the Jesus he heard speak, the Jesus he saw, the Jesus he gazed upon and learned from, the Jesus he actually handled with his own hands. His flesh and blood handled the flesh and blood of Jesus, the Word of God incarnate, the Word made flesh to dwell among us. The same Word he describes in John 1.14 when he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what John is doing, John is affirming that Jesus came in the flesh. He was not an illusion. He was not an apparition. He was, in reality, the God-man walking in the flesh on the earth, the very earth he created. There are many, there were many in John's day who believed the Spirit and the divine were utterly opposed to matter in the flesh. Remember in, in Luke's account in the book of Acts when Paul goes to Athens and he goes up to Mars Hill where all the philosophers hang out and solve all the world's problems all day long. 
And Paul would go to the marketplace. He went anywhere he could to preach the gospel. And finally, people began to take notice. And they take Paul. Remember, they took him up to the council of philosophers there. And let him make his appeal to them so that they could judge this new philosophy, this new teaching that this man had brought to them. And they were all good until Paul talks about the physical resurrection of Jesus and the physical resurrection of the body. And Luke writes at that point, the philosopher said, what we don't need to hear anymore. What is the point of a physical resurrection? Now, it doesn't tell us there in Luke why they had a problem with the physical resurrection, but the reason they had a problem was is because they embraced these teachings of docetism and Gnosticism because they believed the physical world was inferior. It was this secret knowledge. This is what these guys did all day long. They tried to attain this knowledge, and they saw themselves superior to everyone else because they had knowledge that other people did not possess. And they thought maybe Paul had brought some new knowledge to them and they were getting ready to maybe perhaps embrace it until Paul talks about this physical resurrection. And why would the divine bother with the physical? Because in their mind, the creator of the creation of the physical world is inferior to the source of this supreme secret knowledge that everybody is supposed to be trying to attain to. So they saw the spirit and the divine as utterly opposed to matter and the flesh. This is why they could not accept that Jesus actually came in the flesh. If he is truly God, if he is truly as great as you say, then why would he lower himself to put on flesh? Others in that pagan world believed that the gods visited earth disguised as humans, but were only human in appearance, not in Reality. This is the false teaching concerning Christ that John is warning against in this letter. It's a false teaching that takes shape even in our modern times. Jesus, the Word made flesh, did not come merely appearing to be human, as these false teachings would imply. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the Word who is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. His glory was beheld by those who heard him, those who saw him with their eyes, who looked upon him and handled him. And when John writes in his gospel account that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word translated dwelt there is a word that goes back to the Old Testament word for tabernacle. It's a Greek word in the New Testament, but it applies to and it goes all the way back to the Hebrew word that is the word for tent. In other words, we could say it like this. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's literally what it means. And it conveys the, con the concept of a tent being pitched to dwell in. Now when you pitch a tent to dwell in it, is that your permanent or is that your temporary dwelling well hopefully it's your temporary dwelling it speaks of the temporary nature of jesus sojourn on this earth in his human body before his crucifixion and ultimate resurrection and ascension to the father 
Paul in his writings referred to the human body, our bodies, as a tent, indicating the temporary nature of these mortal bodies. Now don't get confused and think that when I say temporary nature of these mortal bodies that that we're not going to possess bodies in eternity. And this is the point of our salvation in terms of spirit, soul, and body. The spirit is what was born again and instantly transformed to be perfectly conformed to the spirit of God, to the holiness and the righteousness of God. Our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions is that part of us that is being saved right now. What do I mean by that? By the renewing of your mind, when you are born again at whatever age you were, however long you lived in this world, and even though if you were born again as a child, you still are living in a sinful world with sinful bodies, with sinful desires, because we can't help it because of the world that we live in is under sin. And we are in a constant state of having our minds renewed to the truth because the lie is all around us, bombarding us. And so the point of our salvation, the salvation of our soul, is that we wash our minds with the Word of God to conform our minds to the mind of Christ, to the truth of God as revealed to us in His Word. And if you're not washing your mind, if you're not renewing your mind to the truth, your mind is left to its own imaginations, to be taken captive by thoughts, by arguments, by strongholds. This is where fear and torment and unreasonable things come in. I was a crisis counselor. I I still am, but they closed down the hotline. But, But as a crisis counselor, I can't tell you how many people I talked to who had intense, irrational fears that just literally were controlling them and they would even tell me I know this is not rooted in reality but I have got this fear gripping me well I'm going to tell you what the answer is to fear that grips you it's right here I've read it to you earlier I, I, 1 John four eighteen, when we prayed perfect love cast out all fear fear involves torment and those who are in fear, have not been perfected in love. What does that mean? That means you do not have an accurate concept of God's perfect love for you. If you know that God loves you perfectly, and He is all-powerful, He is the creator of heaven and earth, there is nothing in this creation that does not exist because of Him. For the Bible teaches us that all things were made by Him, for Him, and through Him. And if you believe that creator, that savior, Jesus Christ, loves you with a perfect and complete love, what are we fearing? What are we fearing? And the answer to fear is God's love. Because that love cast out that fear. And this is what John is doing. This is why that verse, 1 John 4, 18, is in this letter. Because there were people that were fearful. And John says the answer to your fear is to understand who Jesus is. And to understand who you are in relationship to Jesus. And if there is ever a day that the church needs to understand who Jesus is, who he really is in truth, and what our relationship is to Jesus, it is today. 
which is why we're going through 1 John. So this idea of God dwelling, God tabernacling among us, that we are tabernacling in this in these bodies, but one day, the third part of our salvation is these bodies will one day in the future be redeemed. That's why the Bible speaks of our salvation as a future accomplishment. We're already saved spiritually. We're being saved in our soul. But one day, these bodies, this mortality will pass away and put on immortality. A lot of people think we're going to live forever in heaven floating around on clouds playing little harps and singing songs that, that we don't know. I'll never forget when I was a youth pastor, I, I had a, uh, one of my youth, bless her heart, she just um, was so sweet. And she just said, Pastor Jeff, can I just be honest for a moment? I said, sure. She said, it just really sounds boring, you know, floating around on clouds forever singing songs, I mean, but you know, a lot of people don't really understand. We're not going to be floating around on clouds in heaven. The Bible says Jesus is coming back to this earth. Heaven and earth are coming together. We're going to live on this physical earth, free of sin, free of death, free of pain, free of suffering, which means as beautiful as this cursed earth is right now, imagine what it's going to be when the curse is gone. And you're going to live in physical bodies on this earth. That's why your salvation is not just spiritual. It's not just your soul, your mind, but it's also physical. And that's why Paul writes that one day this mortality is going to put on immortality. This corruption is going to put on incorruption. Because we're going to live on this earth. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus in real bodies on a real earth. Just like Jesus came in a real body to the real earth when he lived and died for our sins. The word dwelt is a word that means pitch a tent to tabernacle. And it does go all the way back to the tabernacle in the wilderness or the booths that the children of Israel built when they were commanded to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. And the promise of God to his people is that he will come and tabernacle with them. And Jesus has and Jesus will fulfill the Feast of Tabernacles. He's already come to dwell among us or to tabernacle among us in the flesh. And in the book of Revelation, we see the promise that God is going to tabernacle with men and that is eternally fulfilled one day when Jesus returns to this earth and heaven and earth come together and the curse is no more and death is no more. Listen to Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. His promise is that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, has made his home in us. You realize Jesus has not left you. He is in you by the Holy Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory, means that Jesus is tabernacling, dwelling among us now in our earthly tents that are waiting to one day further be clothed. When mortality puts on immortality, when corruption puts on incorruption, when death is 
finally swallowed up by life and the revealing of the sons of God is made manifest, we will experience the fullness of his glory as he tabernacles among us eternally. And this promise is sure because Jesus really came in the flesh. He came in real flesh and real blood. That which was from the beginning, as John wrote, is the Lord Jesus who eternally dwells among us. He is the word of life. John is bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And John and the other apostles and many others were eyewitnesses to Christ in the flesh. And this is what he's telling the believers in this letter. They heard him. They saw him with their eyes. They handled him. And John is affirming a physical Jesus who came in the flesh and dwelt among us. Not an illusion, but the word actually made flesh. Then he writes in verse 2, the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John is bearing witness to Jesus as the eternal life that was with the Father and was manifested to us in the flesh. This is the word we see in John's gospel in chapter 1 verse 1. The word that was with God, the word that was God, and the word that is still God. The same word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 3, he writes, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John testifies that Jesus is the word of life being declared. John writes that the purpose of his declaration is that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This verse, 1 John 1.3, is the verse that Pastor Clifford Staten took as inspiration to name this church 44 years ago. Christ Fellowship Church. Just as the scripture states, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. How do we have fellowship with the Father? We have fellowship with the Father through the Son. This is what Jesus meant, recorded for us in John's Gospel in chapter 14 when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. If we have fellowship with Jesus, we have fellowship with the Father. The only way for us to have fellowship with the Father is for us to have fellowship or to have union with Christ. This is what our Sunday school lesson is about on Sunday mornings. Our union with Christ. What does it mean to be one with Christ? To, be, to, to come into union with Christ? Well, one thing that we see right here, what John is, is telling the believers, he's writing to that church then, but he's writing for us today. And so for us today, we need to understand that to have fellowship with Jesus is to have fellowship with the Father. 
John opens his letter testifying to the truth, giving witness that to that which was from the beginning, that which he and the other disciples heard and saw and looked upon. John is declaring to them that Jesus is true, not an illusion, not a figment of someone's imagination. That they can have actual fellowship together with one another, with the Father, and with the Son. And that the union and the fellowship that we have with the Father and with the Son is real. It's not imaginary. We think because we can't handle it or we can't touch it or we can't see it before our eyes or because things happen to us in this life that are bad or unpleasant or painful or discomforting that somehow we're disconnected with God. But yet the scripture tells us that if we have been born again, if we've been joined in union with Christ, there is not anything that can separate us from Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can. And so our understanding of our union, our fellowship with God has got to transcend our own feelings. It's got to transcend our quality of life in the flesh. I pray and I want for you and for me and for everyone I know a quality of life in the flesh. But the reality is we live in a fallen world and death is all around us and sin is all around us and bad things happen. The rabbi wrote the book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And I always remind people that that's not what the book should be titled. The title of the book should, should be, Why Do Good Things Happen to Bad People? Because Jesus said there is none good but God. And so our union, our fellowship with the Father and the Son is is not determined by how we feel or what happens to us. It transcends that. It's a truth. It's a bond that transcends anything we can experience here, anything we can feel here. So he is testifying to the truth, helping these believers understand That the truth you look to, that you trust in, transcends the things of this world. And then in verse 4, he says, In these things we write to you that your joy may be full. You know joy is not dependent upon your circumstance. Happiness can be dependent upon your circumstance. I don't feel very happy today because fill in the blank. But joy is something that we possess that transcends our feelings and our circumstances because the 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 lord jesus is our joy the joy of the lord is our strength and god doesn't take that joy from us he doesn't remove himself from us his love from us because we're having a bad day joy transcends that john writes and he says these things i write to you that your joy may be full Don't let these false teachers, don't let these heresies, don't let the things happening to you, the opposition you're facing, don't let that rob you of your joy. John tells us, this is why I'm writing. This is one of the many reasons he's writing. There are several reasons as we go through this little letter that he tells us, I write these things so that you may know. I write these things so that your joy may be full. I write these things that you may know you have eternal life. 
John is assuring the believers that they have put their faith in the true and living Savior, Jesus Christ. He assures them that Jesus is not merely an apparition, but the word of life made flesh that dwelt among us. And this Jesus is the reason for their joy. And he is real, and so is our joy in him. Now, sometimes you hear seeing is believing, but in Christ, seeing is not believing. Believing actually is seeing. Jesus knew there would be those who would believe in him never having seen his physical form. And in his encounter with Doubting Thomas, recorded for us in John 20, 29, Jesus promises a blessing to those who have not seen and yet believe. I, I think you would agree that includes all of us in this room today, right? You are blessed for having believed, though you have not seen. You can be assured that your believing will result in your seeing one day. Now, we see by faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But because of your faith, the Bible says one day you will see him face to face. You will actually live on this earth with him eternally face to face. Jesus is not going to be someone you have to imagine. Jesus is much more than what we can imagine. And when it comes to believing, it is not sight we need, but it is faith. Seeing will come as a result of our faith. Seeing is not believing. It is believing that ultimately results in our seeing. Jesus is not someone we have to imagine or reimagine today. Christ is not imaginary. He is certainly not evolving as many in the spiritual uh, communities would, would say today, that we're spiritually evolving. And our concept of God is spiritually evolving. And the Christ consciousness in us is, is evolving. That is a bunch of hooey. There is Christ, not a Christ consciousness. I need to be conscious of Christ. But what I need to do is grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. I'm not trying to get some secret knowledge that Jesus had. I'm, I need Jesus, not some secret knowledge. Jesus is who I need. His life is what I need. So Christ is not this imaginary, evolving entity, apparition, illusion, spiritual something floating around out there. He is unchanging and he is Lord of all. John lays out in his letter that the reality of our witness to Christ is not only in our words, but more importantly, it is in our deeds. All of our life is to be a witness to Christ. This is basic Christianity, but when you look around the landscape, landscape of the church and observe many who profess to follow Christ, the words can match, but the lifestyle and the practice that is to be conformed to Christ is oftentimes lacking, if not void altogether. In other words, words are cheap. God wants more than lip service from us. Just as Jesus really came and lived and walked among us, so we are commanded to really live and walk as Jesus did. One of the most important ways we can do that in our witness to Christ is to walk 
courageously seeking to please our Father in heaven even when our witness does not please men on earth. Jesus was sinless in his life, really, in the flesh, sinless, so that we can be forgiven for our sin in our life, in our flesh. Jesus lived a sinless life in the flesh so that the sinfulness of our flesh can be put away and swallowed up by his resurrection life and power. And there is nothing or no one we should fear more than God. Not an unhealthy fear. This is the problem with the world. They don't under, because they don't understand who God is and they don't understand the word of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's not a bad thing. That is something we need to latch on to and pray that God would grant to us the fear of the Lord in a life affirming and healthy way, just the way God intended it to be. Because if we understand who God is, there's not anything else we should be afraid of. And if we know that that God, the creator of heaven and earth, who is completely other than we are, loves us perfectly and completely, then my fear will be cast out. Now, that sounds simple, but this is the process of renewing your mind. And this is the process of continually to renew your mind because you can get rid of one fear today and there's 12 more facing you tomorrow. And what's going to overcome that fear is not your strength, not your ability to rationalize and logically try to figure out whether I should or shouldn't be afraid of this. No, it's understanding who God is. It's understanding the perfect love of Jesus and giving those things to him and trusting those things with him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we see, when we see professing believers more fearful of man's reaction to the truth than God's reaction to our compromise of the truth, there's a problem. And let me just say, there's a problem in the church today. Unfortunately, for many today, truth is a relative concept. Truth for many is a floating concept instead of an absolute reality. If Jesus is not considered real, if he did not really come in the flesh, if he is not really God, truth will not be considered real or absolute, and it is not for many today. And if you don't believe that, as they say, follow the science. Or the science that people want to ignore. Because now they're going to let men compete as women in the Olympics. Follow the science with that. If the creator is not considered real by his creation, then the creature has abandoned the truth and made himself God. You do realize, church, this is the world we're living in today. If there is a question as to the reality of Jesus, if Jesus was only an apparition that simply appeared to be flesh, there is no salvation and then there is no reason to hope. John assures us the contrary. Jesus did come in the flesh and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And John assures all believers there is indeed a reason to hope and also a reason to rejoice. 
And he has written these things that our joy may be full. And in doing so, he reminds us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. May he find joy in us as we find our greatest joy in him. Now you might wonder, how does docetism and Gnosticism apply to me today? Well, it absolutely applies to you today. These ancient heresies that are largely unknown and not really talked about much today can seem irrelevant. But if you think about what they are, you realize that many people believe and practice these false ideologies all the time, all around us. In fact, they have shaped much of our culture today. Docetism and Gnosticism are just names applied to sin. That's all it is. We're just talking about sin. The name we give it really doesn't matter. What matters is that we recognize it as sin. In our politically correct, charged culture today, we see these two sinful heresies fast at work. Consider our current culture that is ready to cancel and contain anyone or anything that does not come in line with the special knowledge that they have come to possess about race, about gender, about sexuality, about climate, about politics, about COVID, and the list can go on and on and on. These modern Gnostics who profess to be wise are fools. While they are reveling and the special knowledge they believe to possess, knowledge that Christians obviously do not have, they are denying the reality of Jesus Christ. Even worse, many have made Christ simply a kind of avatar of their false doctrines to represent their sin or the justification of their sin. Those who use Christ for their sinful doctrines and practices do not have the real Jesus. They, in fact, do have an illusion. He is a figment of their vain and sinful imaginations, and it is modern-day docetism and Gnosticism dressed up as care and concern for diversity, equity, inclusion, or whatever else we want to put in the social justice bucket. Because the only true social justice is the gospel. The only true justice we will ever get or won't get is through the gospel. Those who use Christ for their sinful doctrines and practices do not have the real Jesus. The problem is there is no justice in these false beliefs. We can call it justice, but there is no justice. It is sin because it flies in the face of God's created order that is seen in all that he has included in his diverse world. I mean, think about it. Can you think, can you think of anything more diverse than the world that God's created? And what we call diversity, equity, and inclusion to try to create Diversity in a world that is so diverse, it, we can't even, it blows our minds. I mean, we just had a beetle guy. I'm not talking the musicians. I'm talking like a bug guy. We had a bug guy come and brought, I don't know how many thousands of beetles. I mean, from beetles this big to beetles 
smaller than a pinhead. And that's just like a drop in the beetle bucket. And that's just beetles. That's not all the other millions of types of life forms, billions of life forms. And, and man thinks that he's going to get the corner on diversity, that we're going to come up with some kind of false doctrine that has nothing to do with caring about people, has nothing to do with justice. It only has to do with man's thirst, his greed for political power. That's all it is. Man's greed to control. This is about control. It goes right back to the sin man fell into in the garden when man decided he would be in control and not God. And when man decided he would be in control, what he said is, sorry God, I think I'll be my own. And man became his own God. There is, as Solomon said, nothing new under the sun. These are the same old lies, dressed up with new names. Just different flags they're waving, different slogans they're chanting. But it's the same lie, it's the same sin and the answer, the solution, is still the same today. As when God told Adam and Eve and the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman, and her seed, he will come and crush your head. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. The solution to the problem is the Savior who has already crushed the head of the serpent. And if we think we're going to come up with some political ideology or social ideology that's going to bring what God has given us in such grand form that we can't even comprehend it, what we call diversity and equity is really trying to make everybody the same. God didn't make everybody the same. God made men different than women and women different than men on purpose. And it works pretty good. Who was it last night? It was Nathan last night on the porch was telling me about a UFC fighter who was a man who had become a woman, and they did not know. He fought two fights and ended the careers of two women But he was allowed to fight because he was technically considered a woman. Will you tell that to the two women that he, he injured both of their brains and ended their careers? Or tell that to the little girl in Connecticut who's the fastest girl in the state, but she lost to a girl who's really a man. And then they have the audacity to tell us we need to follow the science? And wear a mask? When their own science tells us the mask is actually bad for us? And Dr. Fauci finally comes out and says, well, we knew the mask didn't really work, but it made people feel good. I don't care if the world falls for that, but as a pastor in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you right now, the church, the people of God should not fall for that. And it doesn't matter how bad the culture wants to cancel us. It doesn't matter how many times they block you or oppose you or, or take you off of whatever social media platform you love. You 
And I need to have the courage to stand up and tell the truth and not worry about the consequences because we're not going to answer to the culture one day. We're not going to answer to any social justice warrior. We're going to answer to the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we going to do with the truth? And this is why John is writing this letter. Those who adhere to these false doctrines may profess Jesus by name, but it's not the Jesus presented to us in the Scripture who became flesh and dwelt among us. They have, in fact, rejected Jesus to become their own God with their own truth. John is writing to make sure the believers like us know and worship the true Jesus, that we, in fact, are practicing living in a manner consistent with the word of life. And you're not going to know what that is unless you read and wash your mind with the word of life. He is writing to warn against false teaching and false practices, but I think more than that, he is writing to remind us that there is fullness of joy in Jesus, and he is writing to remind us of the assurance of eternal life that we have in Jesus. They can kill our body, they can cancel us all day long, but they cannot take the life that has been imparted to you by Jesus. They can't do it. So Christian, take courage and rejoice. Jesus is Lord. Amen? Let's all stand. Here is your charge today. Those who have the truth must stand for the truth. If those who have the truth will not stand for truth, then who will? The truth will always prevail, and we should never doubt that. That is never within question. It may not prevail, though, when and how we would like for it to. But we must never doubt that truth wins in the end. The real question is not whether truth will prevail, but whether we will travail for the truth. Will we fight for it? Will we stand for it even to our own harm? We are called to be a people who will travail for the truth in our day and in our time. It is our responsibility to do so, not just for those in our day and in our time, but for those who are coming after us. How we travail for truth today will in large part determine how future generations will be required to travail for it then. So let us fight the good fight. Let us fight it for us today and let us fight it for those who will fight after us in the generations to come. Amen? Amen. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Grace and the peace of the Lord be with you. Have a great day.